Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today we have episode 288 for September 5th, 2022. God, I can't believe it's September. Man, <laughs> this year is flying by. Oh, but man, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. We've got a new show for you today. I really had to pick and choose this week because there were lots of interesting articles, uh, but I tried to focus on the main ones. And we still have a lot to cover today. And also, I have plenty of things to tell you about. So a couple things here before we start, and then uh, several things after the news. Uh, first of all, I've finally, I think, finished all my rebranding, which means I've taken my new logo, the kind of orange and red logo with the dragon hovering over the castle with its drawbridge down with a really nice firewalls, don't stop dragons lettering. Uh, I put that everywhere. I think I've put it everywhere. <laughs> I say that because I keep finding these little nooks and crannies of places where I forget that I've used either the logo image or my new headshot image. Uh, so anyway, if you if you find any places that are still using the old blue dragon and castle or my older headshot with my hair pulled back, let me know because I would like to update all of them. I hope I found them all, but uh, maybe I missed some. Uh, also, I just passed 1,000 Twitter followers, which... You know, by modern standards, actually isn't that many, but you know, hey, it's not nothing. So, but you might actually want to follow me on Twitter or Facebook because that's where uh, I tend to post the more urgent stuff, like the two notices I'm about to give you. First of all, Google Chrome needs to be updated. There are some bugs, some bad bugs in Google Chrome that are being actively exploited. Google has published a fix, and uh, I think it also affects other Chromium-based browsers. Whether you realize it or not, a lot of the popular browsers out there are based on Google's web engine called Chromium. The bug apparently was in that part of it, so you should also be looking for important updates for the Edge browser for Microsoft, the Brave browser, uh, and Opera or Vivaldi if you happen to be using those. Uh, and also, if you have an older iPhone, uh, you definitely want to install any OS updates waiting for you. iOS 12.5.6 is available for the iPhone 5S, the 6, the 6 Plus, uh, iPad Air, iPad Mini 2, iPad Mini 3, iPad Touch, if you still happen to have one of those. It's an, another important bug fix, so if you have one of these older iOS-based devices, look for updates and get those installed. And again, when I run across things like that that are kind of urgent, I tend to post those on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, those are kind of my two main places to try to reach people. But that's a great reason to follow me on Facebook and or Twitter. All right, so we've got a lot of news to cover today. First of all, the former security chief and well-known hacker named Mudge uh, claims that Twitter buried a lot of really bad deficiencies in their security and uh, anti-spam stuff. I'm going to talk about that. Major VPN services are beginning to shut down in India over some new anti-privacy laws. There's yet another Google Chrome extension with a lot of installs that is stealing browser data. Google's move to Manifest V3, which sounds technical and it is, but I'll explain it, is going into effect and it's going to make ad blocking much harder all in the name of security according to google but obviously it's also in their financial interest to stop ad blockers as well there was a story you may have seen it was in the new york times uh, about a dad who took photos of his toddler and sent them to the doctor at the doctor's request unfortunately because the photos were of the toddler's genitalia google automatically flagged him as a criminal for child sexual material when it was for medical purposes and requested by a doctor. And that's an ugly story, and I'll have several things to say about that. The Federal Trade Commission here in the United States is suing a data broker 
over some sensitive data that it uh, has been selling. That's, I think, maybe a first. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, through some public records requests, has exposed yet another case where the police are going to data brokers to get a bunch of information about you, basically bypassing your Fourth Amendment rights here in the U.S. Uh, LastPass had a source code breach, which is not the same as a data breach. And uh, I'll have a lot to say about that because obviously these sorts of incidents make people really nervous, and rightly so. But uh, I'll address a lot of the questions around that, and hopefully you'll feel a little bit better. And then I've got some good news. I guess save that for last in this case. Uh, a few articles here. Google has launched a bug bounty program for open source projects. That's a great initiative. DuckDuckGo had a beta of an email privacy feature that is now available to everyone. And a judge in Ohio has ruled that the university cannot scan their students' room when taking remote tests. It's a violation of their privacy. And then finally, I've got a story about cyber flashing, which I didn't really even know was a term until I read this article. It's, it's kind of funny, though it's still disturbing, uh, about somebody, some passenger on a flight, a Southwest flight to Cabo, who started sending out pictures of his genitalia to the other passengers, including one of the pilots. And that will lead to my tip of the week on how to prevent that from happening to you. So lots to talk about. Let's get right to it. All right, first up, this is from the Washington Post, uh, and this is about uh, the former security guy at Twitter who is a well-known hacker named, uh, goes by the hacker named Mudge. His real name is Peter Zatko. Uh, I probably got that wrong. But anyway, let me just read the article, and then I'll talk some more about it. Twitter executives deceived federal regulators and the company's own board of directors about, quote, extreme egregious deficiency, unquote, in its defenses against hackers, as well as its meager efforts to fight spam, according to an explosive whistleblower complaint from its former security chief. The complaint from former head of security Pieter Zatko, a widely admired hacker known as Mudge, depicts Twitter as a chaotic and rudderless company beset by infighting, unable to properly protect its $238 million daily users, including government agencies, heads of state, and other influential public figures. Among the most serious accusations in the complaint, a copy of which was obtained by the Washington Post, is that Twitter violated the terms of its 11-year-old settlement with the Federal Trade Commission by falsely claiming that it had a solid security plan. Zetko's complaint alleges that he had warned colleagues that half the company's servers were running out of date and vulnerable software, and that executives withheld dire facts about the number of breaches and lack of protection of user data, uh, instead presenting directors with rosy charts measuring unimportant changes. The complaint, filed last month with the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice, as well as the FTC, says thousands of employees still had wide-ranging and poorly tracked internal access to core company software, a situation that for years has led to embarrassing hacks, including the commandeering of accounts held by such high-profile users as Elon Musk and former presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump. In addition, the whistleblower document alleges the company prioritized user growth over reducing spam, though unwanted content made the user experience worse. Executives stood to win individual bonuses of as much as $10 million tied to increases in daily users, the complaint asserts, and nothing explicitly for cutting spam. And this is a quote from Twitter spokeswoman uh, Rebecca Hahn, and she says, 
quote, security and privacy have long been top company-wide priorities at Twitter. She said that Zotko's allegations appeared to be, quote, riddled with inaccuracies, unquote, and that Zotko, quote, now appears to be opportunistically seeking to inflict harm on Twitter, its customers, and its shareholders, unquote. Han said that Twitter fired Zotko after 15 months, quote, for poor performance and leadership, unquote. Attorneys for Zotko confirmed he was fired, but denied it was for performance or leadership. Han added that Twitter has tightened up security extensively since 2020, that its security practices are within industry standards, which is saying nothing, and that it has specific rules about who can access company systems. Regarding the allegations about spam and bots, Han said that Twitter removes more than a million spam accounts every day, adding up to more than 300 million per year. Twitter pointed to its proxy statements, noting that growing daily users is the smallest of three factors for earning cash bonuses, along with growing revenue and another financial goal. All right, so this is a tricky one. I mean, it got a lot of news because obviously Twitter's been getting a lot of flack over spam and stuff like this. The whole Elon Musk buyout has really forced this to the front because now Elon Musk is trying to get this the whistleblower's information because he wants to basically use that to get out of his deal to buy Twitter. It, so it's got lots of lots of other things involved with this article beyond the main one. And there's been some, you know, people who have said, not just Twitter, that, you know, maybe Mudge's statements here are a little bit off. I'm not sure what to make of that. I'm sure we'll find out more as time goes by. But I think it's important that this stuff was said. I applaud Mudge for making these statements. I don't think he made them likely. The sense I'm getting, I, mean, I don't know the guy, but the sense I'm getting is that he was very well respected and that this was really not done, you know, in any sort of a sour grapes kind of a way. But I think the real upshot here is that this hopefully, because this issue has been raised, this will be investigated and we'll find out more as the time comes. But if all goes well, then, you know, maybe this will finally force Twitter to get better because they're not going anywhere and we need them to be secure and we need them to, you know, reduce all the bots and all the mis and disinformation campaigns. So anyway, I hope the real upshot for this is that Twitter users will get a better experience and more secure experience and better quality stuff down the line. All right, next up, this is from nine to five Mac and it's about VPN services shutting down in India because of some regulations India has imposed that are bad for privacy. Major VPN services have shut down service in India as there is no way to comply with a new law without breaching their own privacy protection standards. India's Computer Emergency Response Team, or CERT, has said that the rules will apply to VPN providers from September 25th, which is obviously just around the corner. These will require services to collect customer names, email addresses, and IP addresses. The data must be retained for at least five years and handed over to CERT on demand. This would breach the privacy standards of major VPN services and be physically impossible for services like NordVPN, which keep no logs as a matter of policy. The company is registered in Panama specifically specifically because there is no data retention law there and no international intelligence sharing. Other VPN services that have stopped operating servers in India in recent months are some of the world's best known. They include U.S.-based Private Internet Access and IPVanish, Canada-based TunnelBear, British Virgin Islands-based ExpressVPN, and Lithuania-based Surfshark. 
customers in India will be able to connect to VPN servers in other countries. This is the same approach taken in Russia and China, where operating servers within those countries would require VPN companies to comply with similar legislation. The law also applies to iCloud Private Relay, which is effectively a VPN service used only for Safari. Apple has not yet commented on its own planned response, but we have reached out to the company and will update with any response. Uh, cloud storage services are also subject to the new rules, though there would be little practical impact on Apple here. Remember, this is from 9to5Mac, so it's very Apple-focused iCloud does not use end-to-end -end encryption, meaning that Apple holds a copy of your decryption key and can therefore already comply with government demands for information. So I, I read that for a few reasons. One, of to highlight that last part there, that Apple's iCloud needs end-to-end -end encryption. It really bugs me they don't offer that. So this calls out that point here, and it's not a problem for Apple in this case, because Apple can just hand it over. But their iCloud private relay, which is sort of VPN-like, would seem to fall afoul of this law. So it'll be interesting to see how Apple responds to this. But I think it's good that these companies are standing up and saying, no, you know, we are here to protect our companies. Privacy is right there in the name. We're trying to be private and our privacy policies don't allow this. So, so we're just going to pack up our stuff and go home. Uh, and of course, like the article says, people in India will still be able to use these services. They'll just have to try to access the VPN through VPN servers located outside the country. Now, if it's possible India may try to block that. We'll see. I, I don't know. But this article stands to highlight the, the conflict between some of these countries that have tried to implement these dr draconian laws requiring privileged access to information for, you know, supposedly law enforcement purposes. And even if it really was just for law enforcement purposes, I mean, it just blows the whole thing. You, you can't have privacy and, and have these kind of policies uh, in force. So I'm happy to see that these companies are taking a stand. You know, if more countries start doing this, though, it'll be really hard uh, for them to to keep providing their services. Uh, we'll we'll see how this develops. I will, of course, keep you keep you posted. All right, I've got a couple articles here from Bleeping Computer, both related to Google's Chrome, actually, in two different ways. Uh, first up, this is about a malicious Chrome extension that you should be aware of. Threat analysts at McAfee found five Google Chrome extensions that steal or track users' browsing activity. Collectively, the extensions have been downloaded more than 1.4 million times. The purpose of the malicious extensions is to monitor when users visit e-commerce websites and to modify the visitor's cookie to appear as if they came through a referrer link. For this, the authors of the extensions get an affiliate fee for any purchase at electronic shops. The five malicious extensions that McAfee researchers discovered are the following. Netflix Party, Netflix Party 2, Full Page Screenshot Capture, Flip Shop, I don't know what the heck that is, and Auto Buy Flash Sales. And if you want more information on that, uh, look at the link to this article in the show notes and you'll get more specific info. It's worth noting that the above extensions still feature the promised functionality, making it more difficult for victims to notice the malicious activity. Although using them does not impact users directly, they are a severe privacy risk. Thus, if you are using any of the listed extensions, even if you find their functionality useful, it is recommended to remove them from your browser immediately. All right, so let me back up. So what's going on here is, is these browser extensions, which actually do the thing they purport to do, behind the scenes are fraudulently getting referrer links, paybacks, kickbacks, because when you go to websites, they basically reroute you to make it look as if you used their referrer link to get the affiliate fee. 
And if you're not familiar with how that works, uh, this is a common way that free websites, uh, or even not free websites, make extra money because any website that wants to encourage people to use their website have these affiliate programs where you can sign up for these things. And if you successfully get someone to click a link that takes them to their website uh, and you use their affiliate link to do so, you get credit for that. A little kickback saying, hey, thanks for sending somebody my way, a little referral fee. And oftentimes, if you stay there long enough and buy something while you're there, even if it's not the thing that you click the link for, you can still get a kickback because they don't they don't care, right? They don't care what you bought. They just want you to go to their website and buy stuff. So if you route someone to that website for whatever reason and they buy anything while they're there, then you get a little kickback. So what these guys are doing is they've found a way through these. They've got these Chrome extensions that they're giving away that do something kind of useful, try to get a bunch of people to install them, and then ask people use them if they're browsing around and happen to go to these websites that have these affiliate links. They fake out the the website to make them believe that the way they got there was through an affiliate link so that they could get money. Anyway, so if you have, any, if you have these extensions, you should definitely remove them. All right, now this next one is kind of referring to something complicated, this manifest V3. And I'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a minute. And I've talked about this on the, on the show in the past before, but it's all coming to a head now because this change that Google has been promising for some time is actually now coming, is now actually happening. All right, so again, from Bluebeak Computer. The first ad blocker extension for Chrome that is compatible with Google's manifest V3 version three is now available. An extension manifest outlines the permissions and abilities a developer includes in an extension for the Chrome browser. In version three of the manifest, Google changes the Web Request API or Application Programming Interface to block extensions from modifying the data before it's shown to the user, which renders ad blockers useless. The new ad blocking extension that complies with manifest V3 requirements comes from AdGuard, a developer of ad blocking software. The extension is in an experimental stage. It was released to help identify margins for improvement and solutions to limitations. Even so, it highlights the restricting nature of Manifest V3. In the release announcement, AdGuard analyzes the workarounds they had to implement to comply to the latest requirements, the problems that still exist, and the ideas for making the final version as functional as possible. Manifest V3 was first announced in 2020 and became available with the release of Chrome 88, which came out in January of 2021. The Chrome Web Store stopped accepting extensions built on Manifest V2 in January of 2022. All extensions using the previous version will stop working by January of 2023. From Google's perspective, Manifest V3 comes to enhance your user privacy and security by, one, limiting extension access to user network requests, two, forcing authors to include all functionality within the extension, ending the practice of hosting code remotely, three, moving network request modifications from the extensions to the browser, and four, replacing background, yeah, that, that's a technical thing you don't worry about. Inevitably, the above features introduce severe limitations to special purpose extensions like ad blockers. All right, so the article goes on into some more, much more detail, actually, if you're interested, a lot of technical stuff. But backing up a little bit, so Google, who owns the Chrome browser, the most popular browser on the planet, is an ad-based company. They make 90%, I believe, or close, uh, of their revenue on their advertising business. They are an ad company that happens to make a browser, email product, a calendar product, and many, 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 many other products. At the end of the day, all of those products in some way, shape, or form serve their ad business. So as the most popular browser maker on the planet, they can kind of control 
the specifications for plugins for that browser. And it's governed by this thing called a manifest. And the version three of this manifest it was very controversial when they when they announced it, but they have not backed away from this, obviously, because we're talking about it now. It restricts what extensions can do to modify web pages. And I, while I completely understand the security aspects of what they're doing, it's very, very self-serving. And it's really hard to take at face value that they're doing this for security reasons, let alone privacy reasons. And this is one of the main reasons why I don't recommend Chrome. I mean, obviously, Chrome is owned by Google. Anything you do in the Chrome browser, I would assume Google somehow knows about. So the browser itself isn't governed by the V3, meaning that Google can do all the things it wants to do, but it's preventing you from installing ad blockers in this case. And that is, that's bad for the consumer. Now, this is a really tricky subject, one I've talked about many times. I'm actually not against ads. I'm not even against what we call contextual ads. In other words, if I'm already like on a fantasy football website, you know, that probably implies certain things about my demographics, my age, my sex, maybe even my income. And so based on those things, those kind of demographic assumptions, I'm okay if the ads on that page are for things that might appeal to who, you know, the demographics of the person visiting that page. I, that I'm fine with that. I mean, no one likes ads, but I mean, I'm okay in concept, certainly from a privacy standpoint of that kind of contextual advertising. It's the behavioral ads, the ones that actually track you as a person across multiple websites, you know, building up a massive dossier about everything I know that you like based on your web history and many other things I happen to know about you because I'm Google and I know, <laughs> I know so much about you. I'm okay with watching ads. I'm not okay with ads that watch you. So this manifest free three thing is just, you know, another reason not to use Google Chrome browser, but browsers based on the Chromium engine, as we just discussed, I would think like brave, for example, the browser itself can still do this kind of blocking. It, you wouldn't be able to do it as a plugin. So you're now limited to whatever the browser maker provides to you in terms of ad blocking and tracking blocking capability. So it, it severely restricts your choice of tools uh, in that regards, but at least if you use in brave, at least that, you know, that is at least baked into the browser, but this is really the reason that I end up going with Firefox as my main recommendation for most people is because Firefox is not governed by Google Chrome. It is not based on the Chromium engine at all. And thus is not subject to Google's, you know, whims on what it will and will not allow uh, a browser extension to be able to do. I actually understand some of the security aspects of this. You do want to be careful with what you allow extensions to do. Like I think the second benefit listed here by Google's Manifest V3 is a good one and one that other browsers should do as well. Uh, and that is when you're submitting your code for submission uh, as an extension to the browser, all your code should be present right, right there in what you're submitting and therefore reviewable uh, and trackable by the browser maker that is you know, managing the, the library of potential extensions that work in the browser. Some of these extensions submit like a skeleton code and that skeleton code calls out to other points on the web to download dynamically on the fly other software to make the extension work. And that's dangerous. So I think that actually is a good thing. And hopefully, I don't know if actually Firefox or Brave does this, but they should. But that's just one aspect of this V3. The, the really part, the sticking point here is that it it, it does not allow extensions to block ads to change the content of stuff on the fly 
And I understand that has some security aspects to it, but uh, it also conveniently means that ad blocking extensions will basically probably not really work anymore on Google Chrome. All right, another Google article from another standpoint. This is actually originally in the New York Times, but it's paywalled, so I couldn't read the original article. Uh, I've got a link to that article if you want to try to get to it yourself if you're already a subscriber. But uh, So I read kind of an, uh, a distilled version of this from another source called Times Now News. Never heard of them before. But let me read this article, and then we'll talk about it. A father said that Google locked him out of all of his accounts as he took images of his sick son's genitals to send to a doctor amid the pandemic. Mark, a stay-at-home dad from San Francisco, noticed that his son's penis looked swollen and was hurting him. He decided to take photos of his son's genitals to document the progression of the issue in February last year. Mark was asked to send pictures so that the doctor could review them before the emergency consultation via video. The dad uploaded the images to the healthcare provider's messaging system from his Android phone. However, the pictures were flagged as child sexual abuse material by an AI, or artificial intelligence, which triggered a police investigation, the New York Times reported. Two days later, Mark was baffled when he was locked out of his accounts because of, quote-unquote, harmful content that was, quote, a severe violation of Google's policies and might be illegal, unquote. One of the possible reasons for account disabling included, quote, child sexual abuse and exploitation, unquote. The dad was initially confused, but then remembered his son's infection. He thought, quote, oh God, Google probably thinks that was child porn, unquote. Mark tried to appeal the decision, but Google denied the request, leaving him unable to access any of his data. His Google Fi account was also shut, which meant he had to get a new phone number from another service provider. Months later, Mark was informed that the San Francisco Police Department had opened a case against him because he had lost his phone number. I guess they maybe tried to call him, but they couldn't get to him because he didn't have that number anymore. Anyway, now this is obviously a mistake in the article. It says, in December of 2032... Mark received an envelope from the police containing documents informing them that he had been investigated. Copies of the search warrants served on Google and his internet service provider were also included. The investigator said that the case was closed as, quote, no crime had occurred, unquote. Mark requested the police to help him get his account back, appealing again to Google with the police documents, but was again denied. He was informed that his account was going to be permanently deleted. Okay, so a couple things. First of all, this is that AI at work, this anti-CSAM AI at work, which I guess is a good, is a good thing. It, the way it works is it was uploaded to his Android account of some sort, maybe, maybe Google Drive or something. And because Google has the encryption keys, Google's services were able to scan that material and some artificial intelligence system looked at that picture and rightly marked it as this is the naked genitals of an underage individual. And we've discussed this many times before about how all this stuff works. It's a really, really thorny issue. But the real issue here for me is that Google didn't undo the automatic shutting down of all this stuff. I mean, he has all the evidence he needs, including requests from his own doctor and the police report that said there was nothing going on here that was illegal. He should have gotten his accounts back. I do not understand how Google can, can justify not doing this. I, even from a legal standpoint, I don't get why this would be a problem for them. I mean, it's it's a pretty cut and dry case. And there's got to be several more like this. So to me, that's the, like the worst problem of this whole scenario. But this is what happens when AI you know, gets involved and algorithmic things happen. It has serious effects on people's lives. We've got a long way to go before we figure out how this stuff should all be working. 
All right, next up, this is a story from Reuters, and it's about the Federal Trade Commission getting involved uh, with data brokers. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC, FTC on Monday sued Idaho-based data broker Kocheva, or Kochava, K-O-C-H-A-V-A, uh, Kochava Incorporated, for selling geolocation data from hundreds of millions of mobile devices that could be used to track consumers. The FTC said consumer data could be used to trace people's movements to and from sensitive locations, including, quote, reproductive health clinics, places of worship, homeless and domestic violence shelters, and addiction recovery facilities, unquote. Kochava responded by calling the FTC action, quote-unquote, frivolous. The issue gained interest after a Supreme Court ruling in June overturned the Roe v. Wade decision that for decades guaranteed a constitutional right to an abortion. The technology industry has fretted police or other entities could access customers' search history, geolocation, and other information revealing pregnancy plans. Brian Cox, general manager of Kachava, said, quote, The FTC has a fundamental misunderstanding of Kachava's data marketplace business and other data businesses. Kachava operates consistently and proactively in compliance with all rules and laws, unquote. Of which there are obviously not enough, and they don't go far enough to protect our privacy. Kachava said it had been in talks with the FTC for weeks and recently announced a function in the works to block geolocation data from sensitive locations. The lawsuit seeks to halt Kachava's sales of sensitive geolocation data and require the company to delete the sensitive geolocation information it has collected. The FTC says Kachava purchases vast trove of location information from other data brokers across hundreds of millions of mobile devices that is packaged into customized data. They then sell that data to clients, including retailers looking at foot traffic. The FTC alleges that Kochava failed to adequately protect its data from public exposure and until at least June, quote, allowed anyone with little effort to obtain a large sample of sensitive data and use it without restriction, unquote. So this article uh, goes on, but I think that's you get the gist of it. The, the real up, upshot here for me is that the Federal Trade Commission is finally kind of getting involved here. I don't know that they've sued any data brokers prior to this. They, they may have. But I'm glad to see that they're holding some of these people accountable. You know, we'll see how this shakes out. But location data and all this data being harvested by all these data brokers is being shared over and over and over again and repackaged. And there is so much you can do. If you start combining all these data sets together, it's just, it's amazing how much information you can piece together about somebody or even groups of people using this information. So we have got to got to somehow put an end to this wild, wild west of data capture. It's just gotten way, way, way out of hand. So uh, this is yet another step in that direction. We'll see what happens. So speaking of location data, here's another article from the EFF. Uh, actually, one of several articles. Uh, they've got a lot of blockbuster information that came from some uh, data requests that they made. And so this one is kind of the top level uh, article describing what they've got. And if you really want to dig deeper, they've got several more articles on this that you could read. Millions of Americans' everyday movements can be traced by police with the click of a mouse and possibly without a warrant thanks to a data broker that's selling phone geolocation data to state and local law enforcement. An electronic frontier investigation has found. The investigation conducted by a team of EFF experts led by staff technologist Bennett Cyphers, who we've had on the show, found Virginia-based Fog Data Science sells a service that it bills as allowing police to see where a person was at any point in time over the last several years. This surveillance not only includes possible crime scenes, but also homes, churches, workplaces, health clinics, or anywhere else. 
The data is collected and passed through a chain of businesses before ending up with law enforcement. First, personal location data is gathered via thousands of common apps that people use on Android and iOS phones that people install for various purposes and may not suspect are gathering and sharing that information further. It is then bought by data brokers that resell it to others, including Fog Data Science, which in turn sells it to cops. While other data brokers sell geolocation data to large federal law enforcement agencies, Fog markets itself to the hometown cops with whom most Americans are far more likely to interact. And this is a quote from uh, Bennett Cyphers. He says, quote, This data could be used to search for and identify everyone who visited a Planned Parenthood on a specific day, or everyone who attended a protest against police violence. Fog already has extensively traced innocent people's movements just to close its sales pitches, and local police have cast wide nets for minor crimes. The potential for abuse is staggering, and from what we've found so far, there are few or no rules protecting our constitutional rights, unquote. In marketing materials sent to state highway patrols, local police departments, and county sheriffs across the nation, Fog Data Science claims to have, quote-unquote, billions of data points about... Quote, over 250 million, unquote, devices, and that its data can be used to learn where targets work, live, and associate. In police lingo, a quote unquote pattern of life. Agencies can buy in for less than $10,000 per year. State police in Maryland, Indiana, and New Jersey, the highway patrols in California and Missouri, and the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation have had contracts with fog lasting at least one year. Police in New York City, Houston, and the Broward County, Florida Sheriff's Office bought access to fog services, as did much smaller agencies, including the police in Lawrence, Kansas, and the Sheriff of Washington County, Ohio. EFF learned about fog after filing more than 100 public record requests over several months for documents pertaining to government relationships with local data brokers. Records received by EFF indicate that Fogg has past or current contracts with at least 18 local, state, and federal law enforcement clients, while other agencies accepted free trials. Troublingly, records show Fogg and some police agencies didn't believe the surveillance implicated people's Fourth Amendment rights, and so they didn't obtain a warrant before searching through people's location data. And glaringly absent from the public records uh, EFF received were any documents establishing policies or other limits about when and how police could and should deploy this massive digital dragnet. Among the findings, in Chino, California, police use fog services to do massive sweeps determining who was near minor theft and burglary scenes. In a rural Missouri murder investigation, Fog Service tracked a babysitter who was never a suspect. In Greensboro, North Carolina, a crime analysis supervisor raised red flags about its constitutionality and later quit after his warnings were ignored. So again, this article is just one of many. EFF has a whole series of these uh, based on its findings. So if you're interested in in this, uh, go to the show notes, find the link. And uh, this article at the bottom has links to all those other articles. But again, this is just another case where all these data brokers, many, I mean, thousands of them, honestly, are collecting all this data from various apps. And a lot of these apps are doing it even maybe not even know they're doing it because they're using these free software development kits that include this location tracking and behind the scenes is sending this data to the data brokers. The data brokers are selling it amongst themselves, repackaging it, bundling it, uh, which allows law enforcement agencies to get this stuff without a warrant. And we're all being tracked all the time. It's this is it's just got to stop. All right. Next up, this is from uh, Sophos and their naked security blog. And this article is a little bit long, uh, but it's important because I, I know that you've probably seen the news articles about this. And LastPass is a password manager that I have uh, recommended many, many times over the years. Uh, and so 
it brings up some really important issues and answers some very important questions. So it's a little bit long, so but hang in with me. I think it's, it's, it's good to know. As you no doubt already know, because the story has been all over the news and social media recently, the widely known and widely used password manager LastPass last week reported a security breach. The breach itself actually happened two weeks before that, the company said, and involved attackers getting into the system where LastPass keeps the source code of its software. From there, LastPass reported the attackers, quote, took portions of source code and some proprietary LastPass technical information, unquote. We didn't write this incident up last week because there didn't seem to be a whole lot that we could add to the LastPass incident report. The crooks rifled through their proprietary source code and intellectual property, but apparently didn't get any customer or employee data. In other words, we saw this as a deeply embarrassing PR issue for LastPass itself, given that the whole purpose of the company's own product is to help customers keep their online accounts to themselves, but not as an incident that directly put customers' online accounts at risk. However, over the past weekend, we've had several worried inquiries from readers, and we've seen some misleading advice on social media, so we thought we'd look at the main questions that we've received so far. After all, we regularly recommend our readers and, pa and podcast listeners to consider using a password manager, even though we've also written up numerous security blunders in password manager tools over the years. So we've put together six questions and answers, and I'm only going to read, I think, four of them, to help you make an informed decision about the future of password managers in your own digital life. So if I use LastPass, should I change all my passwords? If you want to change some or all of your passwords, we're not going to talk you out of it. By all accounts, however, this security incident has nothing to do with the crooks getting at any of your personal data, least of all your passwords, which aren't stored on LastPass's servers in any usable form anyway. This attack doesn't appear to involve a vulnerability in or an exploit against the LastPass software by which crooks could attack the encrypted passwords in your password vault, or to involve malware that knows how to insinuate itself into the password uh, decryption process on your computers. Furthermore, it doesn't involve the theft of any personally identifiable real-life customer information such as phone numbers, postcodes, or individual ID numbers that might help attackers to persuade online services into resetting your passwords using social engineering tricks. Therefore, we don't think you need to change your passwords. Uh, and for what it's worth, neither does LastPass. Next question, should I give up on LastPass and switch to a competitor? That's a question you'll have to answer for yourself. As we said above, and as embarrassing as this incident is for LastPass, it seems that no personal data was breached and no password-related data, encrypted or otherwise, was stolen. Only the company's own source code and proprietary information. Did you ditch Chrome when Google's recent in-the-wild zero-day exploit was announced? Or Apple products after the latest zero-day double play? Or Windows after any Patch Tuesday update in which zero-day bugs were fixed? If not, then we're assuming that you're willing to judge a company's likely future cybersecurity trustworthiness by how it reacted last time a bug or breach occurred, especially if the company's blunder didn't directly or immediately put you at risk. We suggest that you read LastPass Incident Report and FAQ for yourself and decide on that basis whether you're still inclined to trust the company. Next, doesn't stolen source code mean that hacks and exploits are bound to follow? That's a reasonable question, and the answer isn't straightforward. Generally speaking, source code is much easier to read and understand than its compiled binary equivalent, especially if it's well-commented and uses meaningful names for things like variables and functions inside the software. In theory, therefore, source code means it ought to be quicker and easier to determine exactly how the software works, including spotting any programming blunders and cybersecurity mistakes, and therefore, vulnerabilities ought to be easier to find and exploits quicker to devise. In practice, it's true that acquiring source code to go along with the compiled binaries you are trying to reverse engineer will rarely, if ever, make the job more difficult and will often make it easier. 
Having said that, you need to remember that Microsoft Windows is a closed source operating system, and yet many, if not most, of the security holes fixed each month on Patch Tuesday were reverse engineered directly from pre-compiled binaries. And I'll come back to this in a minute to explain that some more. In other words, keeping your source code secret should never be considered to be a vital part of any cybersecurity process. You also need to remember that many products rely explicitly on making their source code public, not merely so that anyone can scrutinize it, but also so that anyone who wants can use it, modify it, and contribute for the greater good of all. Yet even mainstream open source projects with liberal usage licenses and with potentially many eyes on that source code over many years have required critical security patches from bugs that could have been spotted many times over, but weren't. Lastly, many proprietary software projects these days, examples include Google's Chrome browser, Apple's iOS operating system, the Sophos XX, uh, XG firewall, and thousands more widely used hardware and software tools, nevertheless make extensive use of numerous open source components. Simply put, most contemporary closed source projects include significant parts from which source code can be downloaded anyway because licensing demands it or can be inferred because licensing requires its use to be documented even if some modifications to the code were subsequently made. In other words, this source code leak may help potential hackers slightly, but almost certainly A, not as much as you might first think, and B, not to the point that new exploits will become possible that should never have been figured out without the source code. All right, and the last question I'm going to read from the article, should I give up on password managers altogether? The argument here is that even if a company that prides itself on providing tools to lock up your personal and corporate secrets more securely can't lock up its own intellectual properly safely, surely that's a warning that password managers are a fool's errand. After all, what if the crooks break in again and next time it's not the source code they get hold of, but every individual password stored by every individual user? That's a worry, you might almost call it a meme, that's regularly seen on social media, especially after a breach of this sort. What if the crooks had downloaded all my passwords? What was I thinking, sharing all my passwords anyway? Those would be genuine concerns if password managers worked by keeping exact copies of all your passwords on their own servers, where they could be extracted by attackers or demanded by law enforcement. But no decent cloud-based password managers work that way. Instead, what's stored on their servers is an encrypted database or a blob that is only ever decrypted after being transferred to your device and after you've provided your master password locally, perhaps with some sort of two-factor authentication involved to reduce the risk of local compromise. No passwords in your password vault are ever stored in a directly usable form on the password manager servers, and your master password is ideally never stored at all, not even as a salted and stretched password hash. In other words, a reliable password manager company doesn't have to be trusted not to leak your passwords in the event of a hack of its databases or to refuse to reveal them in the event of a warrant from law enforcement because it couldn't reveal them even if it wanted to given that it doesn't keep a record of your master password or any other passwords in any database from which it could extract them without your agreement and collaboration. So this really covers the basis pretty well. There's a couple other questions in here that I thought were kind of simplistic that I didn't bother to uh, go over. Of course, you can go to the show notes and read it all yourself if you're interested. So yeah, LastPass suffered a breach where the bad guys got in. They took some of the source code uh, for the for some of their products, not all of it, and some other in, you know internal proprietary information. It took them two weeks to do this to do this, and you might think that's a long time, but it does. You know, incident responses like this can take time to figure out what exactly happened, what was taken, and you know then to put together the response. I'm not too worried about the two weeks part, especially since in the end, it wasn't customer data that was taken. I'm sure if it was customer data taken, they would have probably sent something out sooner. 
So I agree with everything this article said. You should not give up on password managers. It is a risk, but the cost-benefit analysis heavily favors using a password manager. Humans just cannot come up with and remember unique, strong, long passwords for all of its websites. It's just impossible. I have hundreds of them. There's just no way. You know, it's hard enough for me, for me to remember my few key, you know, master passwords. And like this article says, your data, your password vault is encrypted locally on your device, either on your smartphone or on your computer. It never leaves your device in an unencrypted form, meaning that even LastPass, if they wanted to, could not get into your passwords. Because not only is it heavily encrypted to the point where they can't break it, but they don't have your master password with which to unlock it. And if you're using two-factor authentication, which you absolutely should for a password manager, then that's just the one more thing. Even if they could get by the first go- uh, the first defense, the password, they wouldn't have the two-factor authentication code to get through the second layer of defense. So yes, these things are scary. I understand they're scary. It, it makes everybody nervous. It, it makes me nervous when I see these things. I, you know, I, I wonder. But I think they handled this properly. And unless you know something new emerges about this incident, I think we can all just dust our hands and move on. And I think we can say that they handled it properly. And by the way, if none of this is convincing you yet, there are some other things you could do to make your password manager even more secure. I wrote an article about this recently. I think we talked about it on the podcast as well. I've got an article on my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, called Peppering Your Passwords. Uh, if you're still concerned, uh, check that out, and it will give you some, some other options to make you feel even more safe. And I said I would talk about the, the binaries thing. So code is written is, you know, in English characters and English language, you know, numbers and letters. And it describes what the software is supposed to do. And then that's in kind of human terms. And then for the computer, it needs a binary version of that. It needs to be compiled. It needs to be kind of munched and transformed into language that uh, is much more readily consumable by, by computers, which is the binary source code. And what this article is saying, and it's very true, is that you can reverse engineer basically any binary source code. There are programs that try to obfuscate the code that make it harder to do that. Uh, But at the end of the day, the code's got to run. And so it's got to be visible to the computer to run it. And so the bad guys can take, you know, any software image, which is binary, and by running special tools over it can basically bring back the English version of the code that it took to make that. Now, when it does this, it doesn't get all the handy comments and, and really nice naming things that went into the code which is kind of what this article is talking about. So if you had the original source code, it makes it easier. But at the end of the day, the bad guys can basically get back to the source code or a version of the source code anyway. Uh, so it's not that big a deal. And, and honestly, what I really think this means to me is if you got a security or privacy project uh, or product, it really, honestly, it should just be open source. I mean, charge for the charge for the service, which costs money. You know, you're going to like LastPass. They host servers where that allows you to synchronize your passwords amongst all your devices. That costs them money. That is something you really can't do on your own, even if you had the source code. So if you really want to be trusted, you know, like say, I don't know, Bitwarden uh, that does completely open source its code, you just charge for the service. Uh, you don't charge for the software, basically. And uh, that allows third parties to vet the software. It's a good thing. It, it, it genders trust. So you really, open source really is the way to go for any product that has a major component related to security and privacy. All right, now let's have some good news. This is from a blog called Decipher from Duo. Uh, and it's about a bug bounty program from Google. It says, Google has launched a program aimed at rewarding the discoveries of vulnerabilities found in its open source software projects, such as Golang, Angular, and Fuchsia, as well as Google open source third-party dependencies. The program will offer rewards ranging from $100 to and I'll explain that in a minute. 
for vulnerabilities that lead to supply chain compromise, design issues that could uh, cause product vulnerabilities, and other security issues like leaked credentials, weak passwords, or insecure installations. Top rewards will go to flaws found in the, quote, most sensitive projects, unquote, such as Bazel, Bazel, I'm not sure what that is, B-A-Z-E-L, Angular, Golang, Protocol Buffers, and Fuchsia, but the program includes all up-to-date versions of open-source software stored in the public repositories of Google-owned GitHub organizations, and those projects' third-party dependencies. For third-party dependencies, Google asked researchers to report directly to the owner of the vulnerable package first to, quote, ensure that the issue is addressed upstream, unquote, before letting them know the details. Google, one of the largest maintainers, contributors, and users of open source, in 2021 contributed $1 million to Secure Open Source, a pilot program run by the Linux Foundation that rewards developers working to improve open source project security. Overall, the open source software ecosystem is a lucrative target for attackers, as seen both through the... Uh, uh, SolarWinds attack and the fallout from the Log4j vulnerability. Google said that attacks targeting the open source supply chain have increased by 650% last year. The inherent security issues that exist in the open source software ecosystem have recently been discussed by the U.S. government, which in the months after the discovery of Log4j mulled over a proposal to set up an independent clearinghouse to offer support and match volunteers with open source projects that need help. So this is great. We need more of this. Uh, absolutely. Uh, open source is a foundational element of all of our software products. And of course, all hardware has software built into it. So this is extremely important. And I'm really glad to see that Google is doing this sort of stuff. Despite its privacy nightmare, Google has done a lot of really, really great things for security. And I, I applaud them for that. And this is just one more of those things. Now, I said I was, I said I was going to explain that weird number. So the, the bounty of $31,337. Uh, so that's a little bit of insider hacker lingo. There's a term of being a elite hacker, which is short for being an elite hacker. And if you were to try to spell the word elite using only numbers, you would use 31337. The three being an E, the one being an L, and the seven being a T. Oftentimes that is just shortened to leet or 1337, but you know, in order to make the bounty a little bigger, I guess they, they went for the full elite of 31337. And yes, I know that's not how you spell elite either, <laughs> but it's just, just trust me. It's just, it's a hacker thing. All right, next up, this is from Spread Privacy, which is the DuckDuckGo blog. And if this sounds like a um, press release, that's because it is. So it's very obviously slanted toward DuckDuckGo. But it's, uh, it still gets the main ideas across. And I wanted to let you guys know that this was available. And then we'll, and then we'll talk about what this means um, for you. Have you ever entered your email for a loyalty program or a coupon and started getting emails from companies you didn't subscribe to? Or noticed ads following you around after clicking on an email link? You're not alone. There are multiple ways companies can use your email to track you, target you with ads, and influence what you see online. They can even share your personal information with third parties, all without your knowledge. Companies embed trackers in images and links within email messages, letting them collect information like when you've opened a message, where you were when you opened it, and what device you were using. In our closed email protection beta, we found that approximately 85% of beta testers' emails contained hidden email trackers. Very sneaky. Companies can use that information to build a profile about you. And actually, they also just use it for analytics, which is helpful, but the two go hand in hand. And because your email addresses are connected to so much of what you do online, making purchases, using social media, and more... 
Tracking companies also effectively use your personal email address as your profiling identifier. In fact, many companies are so hungry for your personal email address that they'll actually pull it from online forms you haven't even submitted yet, which we talked about in this show before. You can start filling out a form, and even before you click the submit button, they can actually take the data you've entered. Beyond sending you more emails, companies often upload your email addresses to Facebook and Google to target you with creepy ads across apps and websites. DuckDuckGo Email Protection is a free email forwarding service that removes multiple types of hidden email trackers and lets you create unlimited unique private email addresses on the fly. You can use email protection with your current email provider and app. No need to update your contacts or juggle multiple accounts. Email protection works seamlessly in the background to deliver your more private emails right to your inbox. Since launching DuckDuckGo email protection into private waitlist beta, we've been continuously making improvements based on feedback. And this is a short list of a few things they've done. Link tracking protection. In addition to blocking trackers and images, scripts, and other media directly embedded in the emails, we can now detect and remove a growing number of the trackers embedded in email links. Uh, next, smarter encryption. We've started using this, the same smarter encryption or HTTPS upgrading that's at work for you in our search engine and apps to upgrade insecure unencrypted HTTP links in emails to secure or encrypted HTTPS links when uh, they're on our upgradable list. Third, replying from Duck addresses. You can now reply to emails from all of your Duck addresses. When you get an email to a Duck address, and that's you know at duck.com, you can just hit reply, type your message, and send it off. Your email will then be delivered from your Duck address instead of your personal address. I'll come back to that in a second. And lastly, self-service dashboard. Want to upgrade your forwarding address or even delete your account? You can now make changes to your Duck account whenever you want, saving you time and effort. Email protection is supported in the DuckDuckGo Privacy Browser for iOS and Android, DuckDuckGo for Mac, and DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials Browser Extensions for Firefox, Chrome, Edge, and Brave. Okay, so this is a really cool feature, and it's actually being offered in several by several other companies. Fastmail has this. It's called Mast Email. Uh, ProtonMail is working with Simple Login, which has this sort of feature. Uh, MySudo, MySudo uh, has this feature as well. These are really handy, and I really recommend you look into doing them. Uh, another way you could do this is by owning your own domain, which is the way I do it. Uh, so if you buy a web domain, you can basically receive any email at mycooldomain.com, right? Whatever domain you buy, uh, you can set it up so you can receive any email that's sent to that address. And then, therefore, you can create on the fly any email address you want, and it will always come to the same inbox. This is sort of like that too. The only part about this that I don't like is that it does mean that it has to route through DuckDuckGo in this case. So in order for them to forward it to you, it has to go to them first. So they, that could mean that they could be reading the emails that go through there. Now, I'm pretty sure that the privacy policy states that they do not, but you have to trust them, right? So there is that downside to these kind of services. But effectively what it does is it makes you make up email addresses on the fly, which has a lot of great benefits. Because like this says, your email address, you probably, you as a person probably have maybe one or two. I mean, you might have a work email address, but personally you may only have one email address. So when all these companies are forcing you to sign up for something or want you to give them or give them their your email address, they can now use that email address to say, oh, hey, this person is the same as that person who's the same as that person, right? All these third parties can share this information behind the scenes and now they all know that those all belong to you. Whereas if you can make up a unique email address, right, which is used as a username for so many accounts now, if you can make up a unique username, in this case, an email address for each of these accounts, they will have a much harder time knowing that those two people are the same two people. And the fact that they've set it up 
to uh, remove all the tracking stuff for the meals is great. And the adding the reply from feature is really important. Uh, a lot of times this this whole notion backfires because originally the systems were, you know, if you give them this address, it'll forward to you. But if you replied to it, the reply email would show your original email address, which is obviously bad. That gives them the one thing you were trying not to give them. But now they've they've set up the the, the reply chain such that they inserted in both uh, the incoming and the the return route, so that as it goes back, they remunge the address. So DuckDuckGo in this case will see your real response address, but they will change it back to the unique Duck.com address that you created on the fly for this when it goes back to the original sender. So they still can't see your email address. So this was really cool. It was in beta. I jumped on the beta when it happened and got it. And but now it's available to everybody. So there's a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. I highly encourage people to start using things like this. That's a great tool for privacy. All right, next up, uh, this is something that I have complained about quite a bit. And that is during COVID, uh, you know, because so much of our testing in schools these days, especially K through 12 is all memory based. They don't want kids cheating at home when they're taking the tests. And so one of the things they've done with these proctoring software and, and technologies that they've forced kids to download and install on their computers or to use on the school Chromebooks or whatever. Part of that process, often before taking a test, is turn your video camera on. I've got to be able to see you take the test so I can see you're not cheating. Oh, and I want you to do a 360 scan of your room so I can see there's no one else in the room helping you or you don't have books just out of sight that you're using. And turns out that's a violation of your privacy. Uh, this is an article from The Verge. An Ohio judge has ruled that a Cleveland State University's virtual scan of a student's room prior to an online test was unconstitutional. The ruling marks a victory for digital privacy advocates around the country who have spoken loudly against the practices of online test proctoring for many years. Chemistry student Aaron Ogletree sat for an online test in the spring of 2021 semester. Ogletree was asked to show the virtual proctor his bedroom through his webcam prior to the beginning of the test. A recording of the room scan, as well as the testing process that followed, was retained by HonorLock, the university's third-party vendor. Ogletree sued the university on the grounds that the practice violated his rights under the Fourth Amendment, which protects U.S. citizens against, quote, unreasonable searches and seizures, unquote. The university in defense argues that, quote, room scans are standard industry-wide practice and that students frequently acquiesce in their use, unquote. What a defense that is. Federal Judge J. Philip Calabrese, Calabrese sided with Ogletree yesterday, and this is probably last week for you, determining that the university's room scan did constitute an unreasonable search. And, and this is a quote from the judge. Uh, judge says, quote, Mr. Ogletree's subjective expectation of privacy at issue is one that society views as reasonable and that lies at the core of the Fourth Amendment's protections against governmental intrusion, unquote. Many universities around the world use e-proctoring programs that require room scans or similar practices. In some cases, students are required to show a live proctor their identification and surroundings. In others, they're recorded and monitored by AI with suspicious signs flagged to professors. So this is great. I think this is probably still ongoing. I mean, I don't know if this is on a track where it might end up at the Supreme Court. It might still be appealed. But yeah, this is invasive, and I'm glad that at least one judge uh, stood up and said, no, you, you can't do this. Now, I don't know, again, how far reaching this is. This was in Ohio. Uh, I don't know, like, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not sure what the implications of this is in terms of how far that this ruling may have effect. But the real reason I'm talking about this is just because it, it is so egregious. And you know, frankly, I think we 
missed an opportunity with the advent of COVID to change how we test. I mean, tell me one instance in your adult life where your boss came up to you and said, okay, here's the deal. Uh, you got something really important that I need you to do, but I need you to go into that room over there, leave your phone, leave your laptop, go into that room over there with this piece of paper. And I want you to solve this problem without using any other resources except what you can remember right now. Oh, and you can't talk to any of your colleagues. You can't search the internet. You can't go to any of your books. Uh, and this is really important. And I expect you to get this right or there will be consequences. Go. What does that ever happen to you? It never happens. That is not how things work in the real world. We need to change how we determine if students have learned stuff, honestly. And look, I know it's hard, I, I, but this was an opportunity for us to change how this worked. But the result is because we didn't, the only way to prevent somebody from cheating on a memory-based exam is to make sure they don't have any other resources where they could look up answers. And so they had to, well, they felt they had to institute these things that had to prove that somebody didn't have the textbook sitting right next to them or using a second laptop or their iPhone to look up answers during the test. And the only way they could figure out how to do that was to force students to leave their camera and microphone on during the exam, record everything, and either have an AI flag weird behavior like they're constantly looking off to the side of their screen or constantly looking down at their lap and maybe into a phone or, or, or might have other materials in the room where they can cheat on uh, was to force them to, you know, do a 360 scan of the room and show them everything in their bedroom. I mean, come on. <sighs> All right. Anyway, so it's good to see that uh, someone stood up against this and that they at least had an initial victory in court. All right, last up, and this is going back to some negative news, but it leads right into my tip of the week, so I figured I'd put it here. This is from Vice. A Southwest airline pilot threatened to ground a flight that was about to take off if a passenger didn't stop airdropping nudes with their fellow flyers. The incident occurred on a recent Southwest flight headed to Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. In a video shared by TikTok user Tigler Marsalis on August 25th, you can hear the exasperated pilot pleading with a person on his plane to stop sending nude photos around. And this is a quote from the pilot. Quote, so here's the deal. If this continues when we're on the ground, I'm going to have to pull back to the gate. Everybody's going to have to get off. We're going to have to get security involved. And this vacation is going to be ruined. So you folks, whatever that airdrop thing is, quit sending naked pictures and let's get you to Cabo, unquote. The flight was eventually able to take off as the passenger ceased sending the photos. It's unclear where the departing flight was taking off from, but several U.S. states have laws against cyber flashing. In the U.S., New Hampshire recently passed a law cracking down on sending unsolicited nudes, making it a misdemeanor. Texas has had a similar law in place since 2019. Lawmakers in the United Kingdom are also attempting to address cyber flashing with a new bill that criminalizes the activity. Perpetrators found guilty could face up to two years in prison, the same penalty they'd face for indecent exposure. Now, this isn't the first time this summer someone on a plane decided it would be a good idea to cyber flash the flight. In June, a passenger on another Southwest flight went viral after they sent out a photo of an older man sitting in his chair with a caption alleging misconduct. And this is a quote, I guess, from the passenger uh, says, quote, meet Larry, who just airdropped the whole flight photos of his pee pee. Thankfully, I accepted it, saw who was sending it and immediately started speaking up. Stay tuned for the police escort, unquote. OK, so cyber flashing, I guess, is a thing. And in this case, it's enabled by a particular technology from Apple called AirDrop. 
AirDrop is something that uses a hybrid of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi to allow you to easily send files from one device to another, either, either between one of your devices and another one of your devices, or between one of your devices and one of someone else's devices. And those files, of course, can include images. So what's happening here is this guy decided that his gift to his fellow flyers would be to take naked pictures of his genitals and find anybody on the plane who had their airdrop active and send it to them, which apparently included one of the pilots. So the pilot threatened to, you know, ground the plane unless the behavior stopped. And apparently it did. I don't know if they actually caught the guy who did it, but here's how you stop it. That this leads to my tip of the week, how to prevent cyber flashing. And, and in this case, the very particular case of using airdrop to send nude photos. So you need to do this on all of your Apple devices. This would include like iPhone, iPad, and Macintosh computers. All of them are capable of participating in this airdrop thing. It's actually very handy. I use it all the time, but you, you need to lock it down. So there's basically three settings for airdrop on all of your Apple devices. You can either turn it off, you can accept something from anybody, or you can only accept it from people you know, your people who are in your contact list. And I recommend personally the, the middle of the road route there, the contacts only. But if you sure you're never ever going to want to use this, then you could just turn it off as well. So on an iPad or an iPhone, go into your settings, uh, then you go under general, and then there's a section under general called airdrop. And when you go in there, you'll see those three options and you should definitely set it to either off or contacts only uh, on a Mac. Uh, if you go to any finder window, you know, it's, you know, it's your file explorer, open up a finder window on the left, unless you've removed it by default, there's a section on the left of the, the, the sidebar there uh, called airdrop. And if you click on airdrop, it, it, I think I might show you people that are near you, but also at the bottom, uh, you'll see this little link and it says, allow me to be discovered by colon. And then there's some answer. And the answer is whatever your setting is. If you click on that link, it'll bring up again, those three options. Uh, and you should either set that to contacts only or set it to no one. So if you do this, that will theoretically prevent you from being even offered dick pics from somebody on the plane. Uh, unless of course that person is in your contact list, which, you know, that's a whole other problem for you. But note that in all these cases, by the way, you would have had to accept the picture. You would, you get a notification and say, you know, someone's trying to send you this picture. Do you want to accept it? So, uh, you know, worst case, you can always just say no if you don't recognize who it's coming from. But this is an even better way to go. So that's your news and tip of the week. All right. Thanks again for tuning in. I've got some great interviews in the hopper. A couple that are already in the can, a couple that are in the works. Lots of great, interesting stuff coming. One of them is going to be with Charles Petzold, uh, who's the author of a great book uh, called Code. And if you ever want to understand computers and software, this is a fantastic introduction uh, for people who are not, you know, who are not techies. It's the kind of book I would have written had I had the patience that this guy did to write this book. Uh, Charles is a really great guy. I had a really fun time talking to him. And this book was originally written at the, I think, 1998, 1999. Uh, and obviously things have changed some since then in the realm of computers. So he just released a second edition. And uh, as I saw that was coming out, I reached out to him and said, Hey, I'd love to talk to you about this. And he said, yes. So I uh, expect that interview soon. Another interview coming up will be with Doug Levin. He's a security and privacy guy uh, who focuses on K through 12 education, uh, the schools and the students themselves. And uh, it's a topic that is not getting enough attention, I don't think. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing from him and that'll be coming up soon as well. 
Now, those interviews may end up actually being back to back. I usually go every other week with those, but because of some upcoming plans of my own personal plans, and also because the 300th episode is coming up and I, that will be an interview episode right now, the interviews are the odd numbers. And so I, you know, putting two of them back to back will get me back on a schedule where all the interviews are on even numbered episodes. So I think I will be doing back to back interviews coming up soon to rectify that situation. Also, if you haven't subscribed, now would be a great time because uh, the end of the year always brings a handful of annual episodes that I do every year that are a lot of fun. Uh, right around November, I will be putting out my best and worst gift guide, my update of some of the best uh, and worst gifts that you could give someone in terms of privacy and security. Uh, that's always a fun one to do. So that'll be coming up in November. And then Christmas is around the time when we're all taking a break anyway. So that's usually when I'll do my best of episode. And I'll go back through the year and get some usually clips from people I've interviewed and put together a really nice best of. And this year, since I've started doing the clips for my patrons uh, with bonus content, I might, we'll see, I might even pull in some clips that were for patrons only. So stuff you wouldn't have heard even if you were a regular subscriber. So anyway, that'll come probably around Christmas. And then for New Year's, I always have my New Year's resolutions. So they'll have an episode for that too. So anyway, subscribe, and then you'll be sure not to miss any of those great episodes or these wonderful interviews I've got coming up. Also, just FYI for my patrons, uh, I am gonna do another, you know, zoom christmas or new year's party we'll do a little zoom meeting where you can join me and we'll have some drinks and you know, shoot the breeze that will be coming up some somewhere uh, at the very end of the year and then also the big 300th episode 300 episodes 300 weeks of this stuff it's hard to believe uh, that's coming up right around thanksgiving time here in the u.s and uh, should be interviewing bruce schneier for that and I will be doing some sort of a big promotion. I'll probably do a, a giveaway, give away a bunch of fun stuff, including some swag and probably some challenge coins, maybe even some of the new challenge coins. So I'm still working out all the details on that, but that will be coming toward the end of the year. Lots of fun stuff coming up. Now, I'm still thinking about doing a monthly mailbag. I want to return to that, which gives you the opportunity to send me questions uh, that I will answer on the air. Uh, but to further incentivize that, because I want to make sure we get plenty of people doing it, I think I'll probably do some sort of a, a raffle giveaway for anybody who submits something, even if I don't read it on the air. So I hope to be implementing that sometime here soon. So stay tuned for that. Lots of great fun stuff coming up. All right, everybody, we're already running along. So thanks for hanging in there with me. Until next week, as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.